Welcome to the Forever Classic Podcast, the show seeking enlightenment through video games, films, and other geek culture. I'm Alex, here with always, and forever is my boy Zach. Hope you guys are doing awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's some really cool, positive things going on in the gaming world here of late that I, I've been enjoying quite a bit. Oh yeah, very exciting news. So Zach, what are we doing on today's show? Um, we're going to talk about some different retro stuff going on, uh, especially an interview that we have with John Riggs, who was super awesome enough to pre-record some of an interview that we had because of uh, time constraints. We couldn't talk one-on-one, so we gave him some questions, and he gave us some answers back in an audio format that we can use to bring to you guys today. Yeah, and of course, John Riggs being a guy who's like, he's really into educating people on YouTube about the art of reproduction carts and ROM hacking, and he's like a big retro guy. You probably know him from the Metal Jesus Rock show, because that's primarily where the large group of people are watching, and then there's all these like little components of the show. So he shows up on it pretty frequently, and I was just like, man, John's into radio, me and him have talked before, why don't we like see if he wants to do an interview with us? And he was like, yeah, man, and turns out, he did all this like setup for us, the audio quality's great, because he works in radio, and then he also transcribed everything too, so if we wanted to put it on, say, Marooner's Rock or one of my other publications that I write for, it would be stupid easy. (laughs) So he definitely saved us a lot of time, and I I can't appreciate that Oh yeah, dude is fantastic. And anybody who doesn't know him yet, you guys need to check out the Metal Jesus podcast stuff. Did I say partner? Yeah, he's uh, on YouTube. Yeah, YouTube, and just check out everything going on with the guy. It's wonderful, especially if you're interested in anything retro. Like this is a great point to like just dive in and see what he's doing and what's going on. Like because he's again, he loves teaching it, so he's gonna pass that knowledge on to you. There's a lot of really cool information that that entire, like, Seattle family has that have taught me so much about retro gaming. I could never learn that by reading books or finding the history, because a lot of times that history doesn't exist in printed form. So it's super invaluable to, like, have somebody super dated, dedicated to the retro scene and are willing to share that with everybody. There's there's a lot of collectors out there who will buy, like, seven or eight copies of, like, a rare game and just kind of hold on to it, hoping to cash out in the future. And, you know, that's cool, but I really appreciate the collectors that try to teach people something with their collection or try to, like, do something more than just having it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Like I like I'm not much of a collector, but I have all these old, very difficult SNES games. A couple yeah. that I like. Like I have the SNES like Mega Man X, I have Which Dragon Lair, I have the Star Wars games, Super Star Wars. Just so I can nice. go pound my head against the wall one day and share that experience with everybody who wants to come watch. I would love to have a legit Mega Man X cartridge, but the thing is is I'm waiting for the uh, the re release. Because I'm slowly putting together a speedrun because I want to learn at least casually one speedrun. And I think Mega Man X might be the easiest for me to accomplish. So, like, I've been slowly picking that game apart and getting some tips from our buddy Mark. And so, um, I, when, once the game actually re-releases on modern consoles, I think I'll buy it on a couple, maybe the Switch and the PS4. And then from there, actually try to, like, time myself with a run. That way I can, like, compete against myself and such. Hey, yeah, there you go. So, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, of course. I, I finally, after all of our talks back and forth about speedrunning, started, like, researching some about a Metal Gear speedrun. Ooh. Which aren't necessarily speedy because they t- still take about an hour. But, yeah. uh, you know, that's beginning to end. And it's like super skipping through cinematics. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of really clever skips in Metal Gear. Uh, one of the funniest ones is Metal Gear 3? Or Salt Snake Eater. 
mm-hmm. because there's that like stupid long ladder that I'm pretty certain you can't skip. Or maybe it's Metal Gear 2. There's one with a really long ladder. It, it's three because it goes up and plays yeah. the theme song. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I've seen a lot of like Metal Gear runs and I've yet to actually sit down and play any Metal Gear. That might be a project we do sometime this summer, actually. We because should. I've got like pretty much all of them on that one collection on PS3, mm-hmm. but I've never played any of them. <laughs> <laughs> the only one I haven't played is well, I haven't played Acid, and I haven't played Peace Walkers, but I've oh, some of the PSP all ones? of the others. Did you play Acid Two? No. Oh, okay. Because I know there are two or three. There's a really cool interview out there by the guys that do the Retronauts podcast that talks about the guy that like helped put Metal Gear Solid on the PSP. That's fascinating stuff. Really? Yeah. I, I mean, it's one of those things like just look for. It was it was at a convention. It's labeled with that guy's name and Metal Gear Solid attached to it, huh. but he talks about like working in konami at that time and how it was like different it was it's, it's pretty cool the retronauts guy I, I i listen to those guys quite a bit and you learn a lot about metroidvania <laughs> Absolutely. they are constantly coming back to metroidvania it's perfect well i mean it's like the centerpiece for anything like there's lots out there but that's gonna be yeah, that's like today i was listening to the warp world <laughs> podcast with jacku x water and grand pooh bear all three of which come from the speedrunning side of things and mario maker for the other two guys but they were like yo did you know that the version of symphony of the night on the saturn has extra content and like extra levels and such and i was like nah <laughs> what so now i need a saturn and i need a copy of symphony <laughs> I, I had no idea Exactly. What the fuck? Ah, that's awesome. That's like Resident Evil apparently on the Saturn had some extra modes and stuff that weren't on the PlayStation. Did they ever like incorporate those modes into like, you know, later things like PS2, PS3 like stuff? Or Any of the just... remakes? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know about Resident Evil. That's probably, they probably added that to at least the PS4 versions, if not the GameCube ones. As far as Symphony goes, I don't know if that version's ever been re-released. Huh. I have no idea. I want to go find some video of that now. I know, because it's like one of the best games out there, especially on the PS1. Yeah, oh, it's wonderful. At a time when 3D graphics was still trying to figure it out, Konami puts out a pixel game and blows everybody out of fucking water. <laughs> and that's what is so fascinating about retro history for uh, retro gaming history for me, because not only are these like little things that people are discovering just because they either have them or have spent the time to research them. I know a lot of people spend time like reading old Famitsu interviews and stuff with developers, which is where a lot of that information comes from. And a lot of times that has to be translated. So I'm sure some stuff is lost in translation. But my favorite thing about retro game history is emulation. And I despise any sort of demonization of it. I think it's great, and I think it should be utilized more as a tool for just general game design. Because at the end of the day, there are so many games that I just would have never even considered playing. But because it's being emulated, I can pick it up, understand the culture, and if I like it, and it, say it's re-released on the PlayStation or something, on the PS4 or whatever, I can go buy it and support the developers directly. Absolutely. Even though I missed that initial purchase. Yeah. You know, it, it lets you dabble into the things that you want to invest in. And what mm-hmm. was that, um, that weird little cube thing that was made for emulation? a couple years ago. Oh, the Ouya. The Ouya, that thing. Yeah. The supposed TV revolution. Uh, I don't know if I would go that far, but I definitely... Uh, <laughs> That's what they a, wanted it to be. <laughs> I, I definitely had a buddy who uh, would come over to our house like every day, every other day. Then he had oh, yeah. an Ouya, and he'd hook it up, and he'd play. Yeah, that's where we played some Symphony of the Night, because our, our buddy Travis was like showing me secrets and stuff I didn't know about. Yeah, like flying outside of the castle in the upside-down thing that you weren't supposed to get to. Oh, yeah. There's all sorts of little like speedrun clipping tricks and such. And that might be the next speedrun I learn as a Castlevania game, because there's a lot of like pretty easy-to-do zips, and that one could be 
super interesting, especially on like the the, GB, the GBA one. Mm. But yeah, so emulation is a big part of retro history for me because there's as somebody who grew up playing literally the NES at the age of like two and just kind of going with it. My family never really kept up with the latest and greatest. I remember I got a PS One like two or three years or maybe a year before the PS Two came out, and like I thought it was great because we would find all these little games at the dollar store or Rite Aid or whatever was local uh, yard sales, and I spent a lot of time playing games two a generation or two behind a lot of the time because those are the things I owned and because of the like financial state where we didn't really I mean I played a lot of games don't get me wrong but we there were a lot of stuff that I missed out on just because we simply couldn't afford it and me being young I didn't have any money so emulation when I was in high school really helped me get a better like appreciation for the libraries as a whole like I had never played Super Metroid I take that back I I, I had a copy but I never got very far in it (laughs) until emulation and because of emulation like we rediscovered how much fun Super Metroid was and it was great did I ever tell the story of how I got into emulation on the podcast um you know I don't actually think you have like and you've got a lot more emulation experience than me too so yeah so when it comes to emulation I started let's see probably sophomore or junior year of high school and to put things into perspective I'm 26 I've been out of college for, what is it, four years now? But, um, yeah, that's right. 2014? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, uh, you were a year after me. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's pretty cool because I was in a, a networking tech class, and I only took the one year because the, there is a two-year course, one focusing mostly on hardware and the second one on software. I missed the software part because I was taking college-level math classes, and the scheduling just didn't work. But So I took the first year of the hardware course, and we were all sitting around, and I'm like, man, so I just hooked up my Super Nintendo the other day, and, like, was playing it and god i love the super nintendo and my buddy justin was like dude super metroid was my shit he like absolutely adored super metroid he could beat it backwards and forwards and he's like i wish we could play that on computer and the like the the class genius uh, his name is brandon and he was across the room and him and his buddies were landing together unreal and it was like the demo so the the software in our computers would always erase stuff at, after 24 hours it was called deep freeze and it sucked oh, but they would play that too yeah, so they would always upload the uh, the demo of Unreal Tournament, like whatever shareware they could find, and we would spread it around on days that were slow, and we would all play Unreal together, and it was great. But from across the room when we were having this conversation, he goes, why don't you emulate it? And doesn't even look up from his computer, and I'm just like, what's emulation? And he goes, dude, let me show you something. And he sits down and like pulls up Super Nintendo, and within five seconds gets Super Metroid running our computer. Perfect. And I was like, oh my god. Like, this was literally the greatest gaming memory I have of just like... Like, any of these old games that I have super fond memories of, I can play on my computer. Because at the time, I had a desktop that, like, I, I it, because of this class, I fixed up, made it all right. It was full of viruses and shit before I got a hold of it. So that was, like, one of my main computers. I learned how to type on it. The actual keyboard that I'm using today, that's the same keyboard from that desktop. But with that computer, I really started diving into emulation and things like playing ROM hacks and language patches and all this. And it just created this deep-seated need for video game history and, like, the weird, obscure shit that nobody knew about or never came to America. And because of that, like, I think that's the reason I'm a journalist in the video game world because I just love that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's so, you're, you're in the middle of doing stuff that you love and making it now. Finally getting a little bit of money, <laughs> <clears throat> which is great. And oh, yeah. we'll touch more on that later. But yeah, so emulation has always been a huge part of me growing up in my late teens, early adulthood. Even when I was like, pretty much every device in my house that can have emulators has emulators because it's just great like i always i'm the type of person that'll get a hacker in for like pokemon or something usually in the summertime and i'll just load up like 
Pokemon Silver or something and just destroy it. I love that kind of stuff. Metroid Fusion and uh, Zero Mission on the GBA. Those are really good to emulate. Fire Emblem. Mm, gotta love Fire Emblem. And yeah. what I really enjoy about emulation is not only do you not have to worry about things like the save battery and that kind of stuff, there is all these little tools and stuff you can add on like visual layers, you can change the sound, there's a lot of like little things you can do to make that game way better than it was in, it is, in its original form without losing the spirit of it. Right. For example, a lot of the GBA Final Fantasy games have a quote-unquote terrible uh, sound system. The GBA wasn't the great, greatest of sound. I never had a problem with it. But you can actually put in CD quality sound of all the different songs into a ROM and play them with like full-blown soundtracks. Huh. And I know a lot of people that play that way. Huh. I never thought about that. But yeah, so as far as like ROM hacking goes, I, I, I've known about it for a long time. Because like I said, in high school, I discovered uh, the one Fire Emblem game had a language patch. And that's the one with like Roy and stuff. So it was really cool because Roy is in Smash Brothers and everybody's like, who the fuck is Roy? Like out of all the characters, why not Lin? I, I still need her in Smash Brothers, please. She's my favorite character in Fire Emblem, period. Oh, she's great. <laughs> but So I discovered that as a young age, and that's what led me to some of the other stuff like the Pokemon ROM hacks, which are very simple. But as far as like the history of it, it's very hard to find. Like There's very little emulation-based history compilations. Uh, you hear talks of like Nesticle, which was a very early program to play NES games, but as far as actually modifying the games, that's a little harder to pin down. One of the ones I did discover was uh, Pokemon Brown was one of the first Pokemon modifications to actually take the game and make like a whole new region a whole new story that kind of thing and that's really when i talk rom hacks that's primarily what i'm talking about something that takes the game either and creates like something within that world or something completely different there are rom hacks out there that just replace the sprites and apparently there was a lot of different versions you can find from the the late 90s maybe even early 90s of doing just little modifications but full-blown modifications are definitely something that like i've been treating as completely separate game releases and i've even reviewed a couple of them fan games is one of my favorite things to cover because oftentimes they're doing it better than the original companies. Oh yeah, because they got the passion into it that's not just money driven. Yeah, and the time, usually, because usually these are either university students, high school students, kids that have just a crap ton of time and no real need to make money out of it. It's usually passion-driven, and nine times out of ten they come away from it learning something like how to program or how to edit sprites and that kind of thing. So from a learning experience as a game designer, I think ROM hacking is very beneficial. Because then you're working under the constraints of that console as they would back in the day. So it, it kind of opens up creativity based on that limitation. Like, I haven't got to see, like, I haven't played very many ROM hacks, period. Like, I've got to see some stuff on them. You and I have talked a lot about them. Uh, mm -hmm. I think I've had a couple accidental run-ins with them. One of which being our Pokemon charity speed race we had, what, a couple years ago? For yeah, Extra Life? Yeah, that was one of yeah. our first Extra Life, like, major events. Yeah, and I... My strategy was all jacked up because uh, there was a canoe waiting to be bought instead of a horn drill. Cause, uh, yeah, that was a weird situation. Yeah, because it jacked up all the monsters in... Because um, I had... I don't remember which version. The first gen Pokemon, so red, blue, yellow. And we got to the cave where Mewtwo was. Mew catching or knocking out Mewtwo was the end of our race. Mm -hmm. So when you looked into this cave, all of the monsters were suddenly very high level, very random, and they all crit every time they hit you. <laughs> I just remember you getting clear to Mewtwo and, like, screwing up something. Like, you either forgot the Master Ball or you were out of horn drills or something. And you're like, son of a bitch! <laughs> yep, yep I, left, 
I left the fucking master ball in the bank because I didn't want to accidentally use it. Yeah, because your um your speed run actually would have been an hour or an hour and a half quicker than what it initially was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you actually had a pretty good pace going. I was impressed. I mean, I think we topped it at like what four or five hours, and from a like casual speed run event, that's not bad. No, not no. for an RPG. Yeah, absolutely. I was I didn't really have a clue what I was doing either. That was the first like, all right, I'm gonna throw on my 3D glasses and have no clue what I'm doing with this run, and I'm gonna try to do something. <laughs> but hopefully, somebody gets a good awesome, kick out dude, of it. Because um, because you did a little bit of research for that, so you discovered like the the Nido King strats and stuff, which is fairly like that was a fairly recent strat during that time. Really? Yeah, I, like it hadn't been out very long. I, Most I, people were using Blastoise up until that point. Really? I had no idea. See, I thought that I was just looking at stuff that was like years old, like attempts at stuff. I mean, the Nido King strat might have been four or five years old at the time, but it was a fairly recent one. Hmm. See, I had no idea. It, it's pretty cool. There's a there's a bunch of histories of like the progressions of world records, and the Pokemon one is super cool. Like everybody tied in the in-game timer, but like they switched to real time after the fact because of course it would be more accurate. And it's just fascinating uh, how quick they can do it. It basically boils down to like an hour and a half, I think. Yeah, an hour and a half in luck, I'm sure. A lot of luck, yeah. Uh, I mean, still maybe people reset if you don't initially get Nidoran. But I think there are subtle manipulations and stuff you can do to guarantee specific actions. Hmm. Like there is in the uh, Castlevania speedrun that Strizer does. There's a lot of, like, inputs that you can guarantee the code will give you what you want. I didn't know that. See, this is still some more stuff I've got to, like, research and get my hands dirty with. I actually yeah, stopped which and is watched stuff Strizer we, like, the other day and was watching him he's run. He's good. Uh, a 3D Castlevania. I don't remember which one it was. Oh, oh, was he running it or was he just playing it? Uh, I think he was just playing it, but... Uh, he was just doing stuff, talking yeah. about like what he was doing and while he was going, and I was really enjoying that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's currently in the middle of Castlevania month for February. I think his count now is he's like 15 or 16 games beat, which is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's he's really far in. He's he's trying to beat, I think, 30 Castlevania games this month, and I think he'll make it no problem. I'm still surprised there's that many. There's so many. There's like a bunch of little ones. Again, why we, why we emulate? Because we discover all this weird stuff <laughs> and all these games that people forgot about. Yeah, or were never released here. And in the case of Castlevania, the first Game Boy Advance game got a lot of flack because it was just not... It, it wasn't bright enough on the original Game Boy Advance. So very few people enjoyed that game, but, like, coming back to it on an emulator or, say, the Game Boy Advance SP, it makes sense. Like, it actually feels like a legit game because you can see everything. <laughs> so that that's why, like... I love going through the history of a series and I'll download like all Metroid games or like all Mega Man games and just play through each one of them a little bit and it's great. But ROM hacking is definitely something that has become a little bit of an art form and a lot of bigger companies have started to take notice of the ROM hacking scene, uh, especially here of late. There's the best example so far is actually from the Sonic the Hedgehog community, which is a community I usually try to avoid, like the plague. <laughs> but, and I don't like Sonic, I promise you that, but Sonic Mania was developed mostly by ROM hackers, and those were the same guys that, like, proved their worth by making older Sonic games run at, like, 60 frames per second on mobile phones. So Sega hired them, and eventually gave them their own project with Mania. And it, it's the highest-rated Sonic game, I think, of recent memory, for sure, and possibly, period. Yeah, I don't know how much excitement there is around Sonic. I'm not a big fan a of A lot either. more than you realize. A lot more than you realize. <laughs> People are fanatic. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, is like, it's so funny because Sonic Team releases Sonic Forces and it's like, it's okay. You make your own character. That's kind of cool. But for the most part, it's still just another subpar Sonic game. And it's great because uh, Sega's like, all right, well, if you guys think you can do better, why don't you make a Sonic game? And then the hackers are like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> 
and then knocked it out of the park. So that was probably the best example of ROM hacking done right, because eventually those guys became their own developers. They put out a product that was critically acclaimed, sold really well. It, only, it was only like 20 bucks. I have it on Switch, and I'm not the biggest Sonic fan, but that game is bloody fantastic. Like, it is great. So if you haven't played Sonic Mania, I recommend buying it just to support the ROM hacking scene. Oh, yeah. That's what I would do. <laughs> That's what I did. And what did it run you? 20 bucks. 19.99. So, I mean, in the future, you could probably catch it on sale. Oh, yeah. Guarantee. There's so many sales all the time. And, like, for me, when I, like, do my, like, little indie game shopping spree, I cycle. Yeah. There's just several websites that I just cycle through because they all tend to have about the same sale going on all the time. Right. They tend to have different sales and different values. Like, they'll throw in, like, a couple extra little games that aren't from another site or might be cheaper on that site than another. So if you're looking for price-wise, you can just find a couple reliable sites that you like and cycle through them, and you can find you a good deal for sure. Like, I've seen, like... 50% 50% off differences in sale oh, prices yeah. from site to site. That's awesome. And It's know, like I think I picked up the Arkham Knight series, uh, aside from the newest one, for like $4 or something. It's crazy. Oh, man. I haven't I haven't actually bought anything in a hot minute. I was looking real hard at Civ 6, and I was like, I don't know if I want to drop another like 200 hours of my life in some Civ. Um, last month was a big spending month for me. Well, technically this month is as well. But uh, for the longest time, I wasn't buying anything because I'm a writer and you know, shit comes in for review, and there's like a couple games that I'll primarily pick up if I'm super into them, but for the most part, what I'm playing is stuff that I'm playing for work, essentially. Um, reviewing, I don't get paid for, there's a story to that, but like, Monster Hunter comes out, I bought two copies, one for me and one for you. I bought a third copy, because my copy was taking forever to get mailed to Alaska, and then I bought um, a couple other random little games at the, the store, but this month, like, I picked up my wife a Switch, because she was ridiculously sick with the flu, and so I made her soup, and as a good husband would, and, you know, took care of her for a little bit and she was yeah. sitting there just kind of like bored and scrolling through Facebook and I was like you wanted to play Zelda here play Zelda and handed her the switch and that's what she did for like 40 hours straight and her birthday's at the end of the month so I was like you know what I'm gonna buy you one because she rarely gets excited about stuff that I'm super into so I was like ah, I'm gonna buy you a switch so I ordered it yesterday and I ordered that and a copy of Fire Emblem Warriors because it was on sale for the collector's edition for the same price as a standard oh. and she's super into Fire Emblem so that that's like one of the things that we can play together and if we both have a Switch, like, I can have my dock in here in the office for streaming. We've got one in the living room. Like, it, it just made a lot of sense. Absolutely. But I'm kind of jealous because she'll get the later version of the Joy-Cons, and my Joy-Cons is, like, the day one version, which had some fuck-ups. So if you, like, play it under a desk, the left side will desync. <laughs> what? So it's really annoying. But I got a Pro Controller now, so that's mostly avoided. <laughs> There's not a problem when it's in handheld mode, just when they're disconnected. I didn't I didn't realize there was an issue with them. I didn't really keep up with it, other than the excitement that so many of them sold so quickly. Yeah. The first batch had some disconnect issues, which is one of those things, like, if you would have called Nintendo... They'd have fixed it, and if I call them now, they probably still would fix it. But like, I don't want to go through the hassle of mailing it in and waiting and that kind of thing because I think it's the type of modification that all they do is insert a little block of foam that helps the signal or something. I mean, if I wanted to, I could do that by myself. Yeah, you probably absolutely could, as much as you fixed consoles and phones. Yeah, phones I've had less success with, but like old Game Boys and that kind of thing are just, they're very easy to. Uh, maintain and fix and usually it's just a matter of touching up some contact points or like swapping out a part which you can buy parts on ebay's oh yeah and they're everywhere and if nothing you can pretty much go find them at any like junk store or like flea market pretty readily like yeah we found a bunch of stuff in uh our random 
flea market, porn market thing in Elkins. Oh, yeah. I love that job. <laughs> there were some cool guys. It was just an awkward combination of things. Yeah, yeah. It's like, a, a, for those that don't know, it was a retro store out of a trailer. Uh, they had an open lot that they would put a flea market in across the way, and they sold, it seemed like a lot of them were pirated DVDs, so they would rent those out. They had a game section of newer games they would rent out, and then they sold retro stuff. And oftentimes, their retro stuff was on sale for, like, a decent price, and you could usually bundle them together to get one free. So I would always go there and buy like retro games but in the back little corner they had a sex shop with your usual sex shop and tales and they sold things like bongs and i'm pretty certain they were selling drugs and know, it was a it was a weird mix yeah it was it was very strange um and the reason i had even gone there in the first place is they used to have a uh, a big room set up full of tvs so yeah they had that while i was there <laughs> well when halo 2 would come out they had it just it was full of xboxes and you could nice. come in, and it was all one big land. So everybody would sit down. You'd pay like five bucks, and you could play as long as you wanted throughout the day. Just come in and come out. And if there were a lot of people, you know, just kind of cycle out through matches. But you just play big sixteen-player land in this random, random shop. But it was it was pretty fun then. What a time to be alive! It's like right now here in where I'm at. They've got the the game club, but down at the college. And I've went a couple times. Like I brought my my PS4 the one time and played some Monster Hunter, and people thought that was pretty cool. But they play like games and smash brothers melee and right now they're super into dragon ball fighters and i want to go in because i just bought a new fight stick that i got for cheap and i want to like learn how to play some of these fighting games at that level apparently some of these guys are good they like ship them to tournaments and stuff through the college really yeah i don't know if they've ever been to like evo or anything major but yeah some of them have like traveled to compete i love to hear that i i love to hear that more and more like stuff is being able to like people are in institutions are comfortable being like you know what like you have the skill in this game like, let's actually send you for the competitions that you're already trying to compete in. Like, I'm going to support you to do it. Yeah. And I, that's what I think is going to happen with esports here. It's already happening to a point, right? Like, there are <laughs> college and university teams. But I think the biggest advantage esports would have right now, which the Overwatch League is doing a little bit of this, is to create a team based on a city rather than, like, just a random team, right? Like, you've got Cloud9. Well, where the hell is Cloud9 from? I don't fucking know. But there's, like, um, in the Overwatch League, the only team coming to mind right now is the Shanghai Dragons. And so that's a, a city, a mascot, a team. You can visualize it. If you're a fan of the city, you're already a fan. Like, that's where I see esports getting more and more success is putting together actual, like, city-based pro teams. Yeah, and they don't have to be major city teams. Like, we have, uh, no, they can... like, sports, like, <laughs> any kind of, like, sport, baseball, football, like, hockey, soccer, lacrosse. Like, we have, like, you know, the Houston Texans, you got, like, the Baltimore Orioles, uh, I don't remember hockey names, nobody can me uh, but, you know, you got all those, like, and you know where they're from, like you said, like, you can visualize the team, the mascot, boom. Mm -hmm. but there's a part of the culture that comes with that as well, too. Yeah, and there's no, no reason you can't have that down to a city level. Granted, there are a bunch of cities with the exact same name, just in different states. That's true. But you can, you can do something to customize that and keep moving forward and, like, representing your stuff. Yeah. And if nothing, it can breed enough, enough competition between like-named cities to have one stand out more than the other, or all of them, if it's a, enough of a heated thing. Yeah. But I would love to see more and more universities pick that up as well. Like, I would love to see um, even West Virginia, like, WVU Marshall. I would love to see them have an esports team. Wouldn't that be cool? That'd be awesome awesome. And I'd actually like to sit down and talk to some of the people down here at our college and see if that's like something there could be funding for. Like, can I be an esports coach? That'd be awesome. Yeah, right? In theory. In, oh, yeah, in theory. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds fun. I, I was actually working on an article um, about esports coaches, and I never got the responses that I wanted back from it. 
But I was like, man, what's it like to be an esports coach? And then I was like, man, what's it like to be like a health professional for the esports team? These are questions. <laughs> yeah, you know, those are those are questions you don't normally ask yourself, but they're definitely something that's there. It's prevalent in mm-hmm. like at a I'm a group of guys just going to go play some stuff and try to compete and like claw into that like circuit. Like mm-hmm. you don't have any of those questions you're asking because they don't matter to you at that point. But they right. should on some level still. But at that point, like that's not a hard thing to figure out either like it's there's general like health risks for it especially yeah. if it's a college-based team you typically have some sort of like nurse's office where somebody can kind of give you like a quick over and be like well you know you're showing definite signs of like eye strain like you should probably not stare at your screen for a little bit or yeah, at least or lower your amount of time that you're doing your practice and training and playing so that use some some of the glasses like i'm currently wearing like mm-hmm. the the gunners and such I'm wearing the cheapo no-scopes that are out of print now, but yeah. Yeah, you know, just those are easy options. It's not something that's going to create, like, a big funding issue. Mm -hmm. And as any health professional, like, they should know most anything that they need to know regarding it. You would just kind of have to give them, like, here's the cone of stuff that could typically be wrong with me because of these things. Right. Can you give me, like, a look over about it? Like, talk to me about it. Yeah, because at the end of the day, these are athletes in a different fashion, but they're still athletes, and their health is a part of that. So, like, some of the things I see, especially for esports teams that, like, all live together and are in one central location, they'll have, like, one health guy that watches their diet and gets them to exercise once or twice a day, you know what I mean? So, I mean, that's, like, a big part of the esports higher, more organized style of teams that I find fascinating. Yeah, because, I mean, even if you're super smart, you got the reaction time, you know, you've got the this, like, inlaid strategy talent, like, you're still gonna eventually fall short if your physical body is not just as well rounded into, or at least touched on constantly to keep you in shape to be able to do those things. Mm-hmm. You know, you're Even though a like, lot of it's mental, there's still a big physical portion and, like, a stamina part to it. Yeah, you know, if you're not eating the right diet, like, you're gonna, you know, pose into hand cramps more often, you know, back, mm-hmm. like, your legs might go numb, like something like that and that can distract or cause like a detriment to you in any kind of critical situation where you need none of that going on yeah and i there's an interesting component right now there's a couple of vr esports games one of which is made by insomniac and actually that was one of my early pieces that i did here here of late as i talked to some of these vr esports players and some of them are like oh the physical part doesn't really bother me and a, a couple other people i interviewed were like yo the physical part's ridiculous like you come out of a match sweating <laughs> <laughs> oh oh was it uh, it might have been something you posted that i read up about but uh it, it basically looks like magic like key fighting dodgeball yeah that's what it was it was um the unthinkables on something I, I can't remember all i remember is i saw just a bunch of japanese students playing it, it's made by insomniac <laughs> i can't think of it right now they just put out a uh a story mode to it i think and it's it's on like Oh, the unspoken. That's it. That that and um, there's another game that's free with Oculus that's big in esports right now. There's like one VR esports league, and those are the two games they mostly focus on at the moment. But there's a lot of like up and coming, interesting, competitive VR games that I mean, I'm not super into VR, but if given the, op- the chance, I would. Oh, absolutely. Because that in, that industry needs a lot of love right now, and I would love to cover their content. I just have no way to do this. <laughs> mm. I think I'll get a PlayStation VR eventually, but like it's one of those things that it's just another massive expense and i don't know if vr is going to stick around right i want it to evolve to be a lot less clunky yeah the thing is is right now it's the best shot we've ever seen if anything absolutely and it's 
you can use it in tons of different formats. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not just the one thing. Like, even if you just felt like throwing on your VR visor and watching the fucking YouTube videos while you're running around, like, go happy. Yeah, that those are really cool for the 360 videos. So, I mean, there's a lot of applications for VR. Um, the, the HTC Vive is getting a pro version, so to speak, like a slightly upgraded one. And that'll be interesting to see how that kind of changes the market. I kind of anticipate PS4 releasing a, a new PSVR that's essentially like the pro version of that. I would see that happening. But I think the Rift has already bitten through two or three models. Yes. I know they just recently added a different form of their controllers. So that's pretty cool. And some of those controllers are really nice. Like I've played all of them um, briefly. And I mean, if I had the nice computer, I would play, I would get the Vive because the Vive is cool. Problem with it is you need a big space because it's room based. But like for desktop playing, I would get the PlayStation one. But yeah, speaking of things that take a lot of physical strain, um, when I talk to speedrunners, a lot of times, uh, I ask like what a part of their routine is and usually it's some sort of hand stretching because when you're playing in that intense sort of matter you really gotta keep track of like how flexible your hands are and like how fast you can tap buttons for some games like Mega Man so there, there's a big physical component even to things like speed running oh yeah and you know in, in that kind of case too you don't want your hand to cramp up in a speed run because then you've goofed the whole thing just instantly that's uh, the quickest way to ruin a world record pace I've seen it happen <laughs> I was gonna say something else and I totally forgot what it was so this is where I was headed with this. Um, Speedrunning is a big part of emulation for me personally, because a lot of the games that are seeing more attention in the speedrun scene, aside from the classics like, you know, Super Metroid, Mario Sunshine, Mario 64, the staples of it. But um, there's a lot of ROM hacks being attempted like that, too, right now. It, it got into AGDQ, at least, or Awesome Games Done Quick, Summer Games Done Quick. It's been in a couple of those events. The most recent one, Grand Pooh Bears, was a donation incentive. So people actually paid money to see him play a ROM hack, which is crazy. Yeah, and it, they filled that very quickly, too. Oh, yeah, that donation incentive was met in, like, a day or two into the thing. Like, it was filled up immediately. And the, the like, goal was 150000 or something, so this isn't a small amount of money to get this going. Like, this was a big donation pool of the community sitting down and saying, yes, ROM hacks, we want to see... Pooh Bear run it. Yeah, you know, having that much support come in for something like that, it's it, it shows you that it's here. It's here to stay. People love it, and it, they want more of it. And, like, Super Mario World is a game that will very... I doubt that game's going to lose relevancy, because it is... It was created in a very special time. It's a a classic for a reason. That game will be playable for the next 40, 50 years. And so ROM hacking adds stuff to the game that we wouldn't necessarily have otherwise. And there are plenty of people out there that are like, yo, I would play Mario Brothers again if it had like more levels or something. And that's where the DLC kind of comes from for us in the modern space. But ROM hacking has really opened that up. And then there's tools like Lunar Magic, which allows you to basically paint by numbers a Mario World level. And that's what a lot of people are using to create create their own ROM hacks and that kind of thing, which inspired Super Mario Maker. Funnily enough, Nintendo actually basically caught on to that. It was a mix. It was a mix of the fact that Lunar Magic ex- existed and people were creating their own Mario levels anyways, and the the method they used with the grid on the Wii U and the 3DS is the same sort of like graph paper style that they would use in the original Mario plans to create levels themselves. So whenever they had a level concept, they would draw it out on paper, and you can see footage of that in a couple different documentaries and such, and that's how Mario Maker came to be, and that was at least in part inspired by the ROM hacking community. Right, and that... that- you're talking about that, like uh, anybody who has ever played Mario Paint can see it. Yeah, yep. 
and Mario Maker has a lot of Mario Paint references built inside of it as well, with like the the fly swatting mini game and the basic um, <laughs> setups of the hands and that kind of stuff. So yeah, it all it all played together to create something that like made total sense, right? Like everybody wanted to make their own Mario game. I mean, come on, it's one of the most recognizable names in video games. Period. Yeah, and it's gonna continue to be, you know, like it's everywhere. Like video games, Mario. Yeah, uh, they're synonymous. Mm-hmm. It's household too, so it's not like it's a random thing. It's it's a household staple. Yeah, he's Mario and Pokemon, specifically Pikachu, has been noted to be more popular and more recognizable than Mickey Mouse. Yeah, which is insane because Mickey was around for since what the early fifties, sixties, something like that. Yeah, he goes maybe earlier. Yeah, definitely earlier because before that he was Steamboat Willie in black and white. So and that was like what in the forties. <laughs> Yeah. It was a long-ass time ago. Yeah. Like, and that's several decades before I was born. And that's what's crazy, is all this video game, like, history and affecting pop culture and, like, the trends of technology and stuff, this is all shit that's come together basically in the last 40 years. It's not like books where we've had thousands of years of people writing shit down. No, video games is, is like, a brand new medium by comparison. Yeah, and it's wonderful. <laughs> and it's already it's having, a, like, a global effect. It's such a, a wonderful, meldable medium, too. And it's great for anybody, like, because you can do it on so many levels from the retro level to now into the vr level yeah and video games as an interactive medium of course has a lot of pulls and the great part about it is is it's also moldable like you said so um what comes to mind initially is folks that have like a disability or maybe they they lost a hand or something there's ways for those people to play yeah we've developed controllers or like different versions of the game so everybody can play yeah and we talked uh in one of our early episodes, in a gaming news episode about the uh, the glove that works as a controller. So yeah. you, you can have two and have two controllers, or you can have one and use just different movements of your hand to work as an entirely functional controller. So, you know, somebody missing the arm can play. And that's the kind of stuff that I find fascinating, fascinating is because I love weird controllers and controllers that fit a, like, very specific purpose. Uh, I wish I would have bought it a long time ago, but I found, like, a one-handed PS1 controller, specifically for, like, what we talked about is, I mean, you could play, like, Final Fantasy VII or whatever and have a cup of coffee in the morning, like, or for somebody that's, you know, hat struggles using both hands, that's an option for them. And there's a lot of these, like, specific controllers, able gamers, is a big proponent of that. I believe they're even a charity as well. And they're all the time sharing stories of like, here's this specific way we help somebody game. And it's usually like this really inventive controller or just a different way to map the buttons and such. I think that almost every, by console, and I think Xbox does this, I wish that you could map a button to whatever you wanted, whatever action, swap out those buttons for anything on whatever controller you have plugged in. And that alone would be just a huge benefit for those that struggle with playing traditional control schemes, which is something that has been built up since the NES days. Like, everybody knows what a D-pad is, who have been playing for a long time. Everybody knows uh, that the right analog stick helps you look around in a lot of games, because it's just been a part of video game culture for so long. But, like, new players, I sit, somebody who hasn't touched a video game since the original Mario Brothers and say, here's a first-person experience, you look around with the right stick. And just that basic movement of walking and looking at the same time can be such a struggle for those early players. So just having all these different options to play, I think, is super Super important to the video game medium, and I mean, sure, that's a thing too in reading, where you have things like audiobooks and braille and that kind of stuff. But I, it, there's so many possibilities in the gaming space to just enable anybody to play. Oh, and it's wonderful. We, uh, me and Lauren, were having to talk about people coming into games and having that weird hard transition because mm-hmm. where we've played it for so long, we're basically experts in the understanding of games, how they work, and like the hardware associated with them. 
like you know, like you said, like the right sticks synonymous with looking around because we're used to that. Mm-hmm. The X button's usually synonymous with jumping because we're used to that. But new people and people who haven't played or haven't played in forever don't have that same like automatic knowledge and being able to tailor something like that especially to somebody who can't perform the same way is awesome because there's a game out there for everybody doesn't matter what it is there's something for you just the technology is there to make it accessible for you as well for sure the the term video game is so damn broad now that it's trying to pack them in under a single umbrella like i recently listened to a senator say something about video games specifically caused this mindset and i'm like that's really stupid (laughs) i'm like you can't put an entire medium under one umbrella and make it fit your needs it doesn't work like that and that's the kind of stuff that like when i hear political people say stuff because that's what i do in my day job in radio is i listen to a lot of politics unfortunately and i'm just like man y'all are taking this the wrong way then maybe i should send you an email and try to educate you at least a little bit absolutely because for me like the medium of video games have become like art like theaters just always getting new sources of i don't want to say backlash but you typically when stuff's going wrong you typically see theater have a big boom and stuff mm-hmm. because they're holding up the mirror to it and just performing what's going on and showing it back as far as like mirroring what's happening in society at that moment right and you're finding yeah. some more of that starting to leak into the gaming medium but i find it all under the like art umbrella so you see the same sort of stuff like, you know, you can't say video games cause this without being like, well, you know, it's because of the art. This this painter painted all of these things and caused this or this type of live theatrical performances or live musical performances or spreading this terrible culture. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, at concerts, people smoke new drugs. Cool. At other concerts, they don't. That's that's what always has bugged me, because the, the number one argument is violent video games create violence. Listen, alright, first off, Grand Theft Auto itself, Grand Theft Auto 5, is like one of the most top-selling video games, right? And here, just two people connected to Grand Theft Auto and say a murder. That's two out of, like, eight million people who have bought and played this game. That's a very, very small percentage. Right. Those types of, of people do not reflect the the medium, the culture, or even the game that may have been connected to them. It irritates me a lot. (laughs) Right. You know, like, that sort of information would be different if they could be like, you know, we've accounted for, like, 15 deaths a year because of this game specifically having this effect on this type of people. Yeah, I mean, what's worse is people calling in SWAT teams when people are streaming. That's yeah. the shit that needs to be stopped. Yeah, that was messed up. And that's, that's like, that's got a term that's common enough. Yeah. That's insane. Like, that's what people in the normal media should be approaching is that kind of shit. Rather than, oh, this person played video games and also happened to do cocaine. Must have been the video games. <laughs> oh, it's such a, like, specific thing. And people try to use it as a broad argument. And I'm sorry, but you're dumb. <laughs> that's all it boils down to. You're just dumb and you haven't experienced it properly yet. Yeah, nobody can critically think anymore. And that's one of the things I love about video games is it just breeds innate critical thinking. You don't even have to try it. Like, you just, by playing, begin to critical think. Mm -hmm. You're using your hands to do specific actions. Uh, Games with puzzles is all about problem solving. I know people who, like, I I ask this question to a lot of different speedrunners in my interviews, is I'm like, what about learning this game has affected your life? And they'll either be like, well, now I, I, my schedule day-to-day is very rigorous now, or, or, like, I'm super focused whenever I'm at work, because like, I'm just used to, the guy that I talked to about Silent Hill, he's like the top Silent Hill speedrunner, his name's Punchy. You should definitely look up Punchy, he performed at AGDQ. He's, the best quote 
quote that he told me is he said, the one thing that speedrun affects me is that now I understand you put in effort to get something. Because he's put in thousands upon thousands of hours to make his Silent Hill speedrun the best. And he's like, I don't know why it took that for me to learn that put in effort, get something. So he can apply that to, say, working out. If I run a lot, I'll be able to breathe better. Easy. <laughs> and he's like, I don't know why speedrunning taught me this, but that's what it was. And that's amazing. Or, like, if you want to be good at cooking, like, put in effort, get skill. Of course. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's a simple concept that people don't grasp, but this is a medium kind of just being like, here's some things, and it's just clicking bells and, you know, throwing switches in your brain that you're not thinking about. You're just having fun and yeah. get to reapply that later. And I mean, people were yeah. afraid of novels when the Great Depression was around. They're like, oh, novels is gonna is gonna take our youth away and all these little serial-based stories are a waste of time. And, and it's like, people wouldn't say that about books now, just as, you know, on principle. They're not gonna say it about music now, on principle. Right. They I, wouldn't. I don't know. It's, people still it's do, one of those things that it's not gonna be a problem in 60, 70 years, right? Like, a whole generation from now, people are gonna look at video games the same way they're looking at films, music, artwork, whatever. And it's already starting to shift by that a little bit. It's just, it's gonna take a couple generations to get to that point where everybody on the face of the planet understands what a game is and recognizes it as a form of media. Exactly. Especially with, um, I'm finding that music's really, like, touching base on that because you have, like, Henry Gregson Williams, who's composing Metal Gear Solids, composes, he composes many other things, and it's in film scores, mm -hmm. like, TV scores, like, it's, it's everywhere. And you may not know that, but when you go to look at it, you see that he's so intertwined in all of this other stuff, and other composers, not just him, I just use him as, a, as an example because of my well, yeah. Metal Gear like time <laughs> encyclopedia style <laughs> knowledge of a franchise that deserves this encyclopedia just understand it. it I mean it has one and it's still hard <laughs> to understand <laughs> um, but yeah no like it's it's everywhere and like you can't eventually be like well you know the composer was good and he just did a thing no like it was awesome it's super multi-leveled and multiple mediums into this one medium that it's gonna keep going forever and always be regarded as that he's an award winning composer and he's in video games and film as music yeah. so that's three big bases right there and that's the kind of when you take video games apart i mean there's a lot of appreciation i can put on the cuphead soundtrack on vinyl and sit it in front of somebody who's like a fan of big band jazz and they'll be like wow this is really good i'll be like it's from a video game and they'll be like well maybe i need to play video games now or something like there's so many parts of of games and cuphead's a great example because it's visually like harkens back to the old cartoons the mickey mouse era the uh the the old style of animation and it just works and it's it's got the retro style gameplay on top of that. Yeah, retro so like style it's a multi-tiered technicolor video games, coloring. Oh, yeah, video games are the onion to use the Shrek metaphor <laughs> of art because it took a visual guy, it took a music person, it it took a programming woman, like all these different components put together, and that's what I think has made it so interesting for me as somebody who studies video game history is it's a collective work nine times out of ten. It's more than the sum of its parts. Even though we know some really good solo programmers, I'm looking at you, Nathaniel Weiss, who made Songbringer, you awesome son of a bitch. <laughs> 
and Tom Hap that did Axiom Verge. That was a one-guy project, too. There's there's really good examples out there, but, like, these games are reflections of people. It's the most human expression of artwork, in my opinion, period, because it's everything put together. I mean, even if it's not necessarily collaborative, like, you know, the composer doesn't necessarily have to sit down with the voice actor or the actor yeah. or the artist or the programmer. And a lot of times they don't in larger productions. Yeah, you know, you may never, ever see anybody who's worked on it. You might just do your thing and be like, here's my part. Mm -hmm. And you've become, you know, not necessarily just another cog in the wheel, but you've become this intricate part of a much, much bigger, like, you know, tapestry of awesomeness. Right. Would Metal Gear Solid be the same experience if it wasn't for the musical score adding to that? I don't know. I don't think so. No, I don't think I would have enjoyed just crunching leaf sounds or footfalls. Yeah, and sometimes games work with that. Breath of the Wild is a good example. There's powerful moments in that game with pure silence, in my opinion, than some of the musical tracks. And silence is a choice. <laughs> like, oh my god. I love it. Yeah, because it's all then like... you hear things like the nature around you, or just like, half the time in horror games, I mean, silence is what's truly terrifying when you hear just like the breathing of your character. Or in the case of, I think, Alien Isolation, I don't know if it has music tracks behind it or not. I've never played it. But in those sort of situations, situations like that's when silence is really powerful and that's a part of it from my acting experience in college time like when you're on stage you're doing something because it like stage and like film and tv and like i guess you can have absolutely say games too like you're not talking about the day that nothing happened mm -hmm. ever but the time that you aren't doing something filling the space with noise filling the space with movement and like doing something when you choose to do nothing or choose silence that's like a big something. Yeah. To me, it reflects to me like just as a weird tangent, like growing up uh, in the woods. I mean, because we both, you and I both grew up in rural areas like where I lived. I yep. don't know if you ever came to my house. Um, I don't think you're your original, like where you grew up at. <clears throat> Uh, but, you know, I lived on a dead-end back road in the middle of the National Forest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My parents and grandparents lived next door to each other, but you still had to walk either straight through some very dense woods up a hill, or had to walk up the driveway down the road, up the hill, and down my grandparents' driveway, or, you know, vice versa to my folks. But at night, you could hear crickets, cicada, like, frogs, like, all kinds of stuff. But when you didn't hear something, that's when you knew something, like, predatorial was around, and then it wasn't a good idea to just stick around or a good idea to do anything at all, like go back inside, like fuck that trip. Yeah. <laughs> and I grew up playing in the woods and such like that. And I mean, sometimes it takes that moment of silence too, when just like everything is super quiet and you just look up at the night sky or something. I mean, that can conversely not only be a symbol of, hey, maybe this is out of the ordinary and there's a reason for that, but it can also be a very powerful experience too. Yeah. But back to ROM hacking. So a lot of people have, um, because it primarily focuses on the retro culture of gaming, ROM hacking has taken this really interesting turn where those gamers typically like a physical piece of media. A lot of times we like to have the Super Nintendo cartridge on our shelf in our hands, stick it in the console as we did when we were kids or what have you. Um, so there's this culture called reproduction and primarily known as repro cards. So what will happen is they'll take, like, say the ROM hack of Pokemon Brown. We'll use that as an example. They'll take that and flash it to a ROM chip and then create their own cartridge and oftentimes create their own box on top of that. And then they'll either use that for personal uh, choice. They're sold a lot of times at conventions, I found. And I find it great because I'll, like, flick through all the different ROM hacks and stuff somebody might have available. And I'm like, oh, this is a weird-looking Metroid thing. What's this about? And so it just, like, adds to the experience in my, in my uh 
opinion. So, and that's an area that John Riggs, our guest today, focuses on is ROM hacking, uh, repro production. He's really big into sharing knowledge on on retro game and those level of hobbies of like really breaking it down and and putting something on an actual physical piece of media. Flashcarts are a, another example of this, where you take the ROMs on an SD card, play it on the uh, the actual hardware. It just adds to it in a way. First of all, it's going to run usually a lot better than it would on a standard emulator. But second of all, it's just th- there's something special about owning a ROM hack on a cartridge. And I don't own any yet. I don't think. No, I don't have any yet. But there's a couple ROM hacks that, like you know, if if I was a speedrunner and I'm running, say, uh, Super Mario Kaizo Bros. 3, then maybe a, a, a physical cartridge would be something I would want to, like, commemorate, hey, this is a game I'm spending a lot of time on, now I own it, and maybe that's how you prefer to run it, is, like, through a Super Nintendo or something. So reproduction, for me, has a lot of value, because I'm a big fan of physical media. So these ROM hacks can survive through physical media, and that's who we talked to about was John Riggs, who immediately came to my mind, because I watch a lot of Metal Jesus, and He's got his own Facebook page. He's got his own YouTube channel. Uh, Rigged Games, I think, is what he calls it. But, I mean, you can search up John Riggs and find the guy. Do you have any uh, repro carts yourself, Zach? Or have you seen any of these at conventions? Uh, No. Uh, Actually, I haven't seen any of these because I haven't been to a convention in a while. And Mm -hmm. it's been about the time that you started talking to repro cards to me that I just haven't been back to one to check anything out. And around, like, directly where I live, there's not a whole lot of that. But... Being not terribly far from D.C., I'm sure there's something. And I mean, even in parts of, like, there is a... There's either a Pittsburgh convention or, like, a a Huntington convention I was at. I've seen repro carts in our home state. There's a retro event called Power Up or Level Up or something like that down in Huntington. And that's where I found a lot of ROM hacks. And, of course, the random assortment you would find at a retro game convention. The oddities, the the expensive shit, you know, just it's part of it. It's part of the culture now. And it depends on what convention you go to. Some conventions are very, like, specific of we do not allow the selling of ROM hacks, especially repro cards. Or particularly, they'll be like, hey, if you're selling a repro card of a rare title, you have to specifically mark it as a repro, not an original. So things like that are stupid expensive, the uh, the NES World Championships, that's been reproduced thousands upon hundreds of times. And for some people, you know, that's kind of cool to have, you know, pay 30 bucks and get a cartridge and maybe put it in a, a shadow box and hang it on the wall or whatever. And you know, if somebody's like, hey, what's this? It's got a story behind it. But like reproduction for me is, is huge because a lot of those games that either A, were too rare to find or or just brand new. I mean, I would love to have a physical cartridge of that. That's why I own so many flash cards. So yeah, we talked to John Riggs. We actually, we, we sent him some questions. He recorded them for us. Great guy. He transcribed them, like I said. And so this is, again, all going to be pre-recorded. So it might sound a little awkward at first, but John made it sound fairly natural. So, I mean, what we'll do is we'll, we'll sort of read the questions. John will ask from the ether, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and it, it'll be fun. It, it's one of those things that like, I really enjoy the content that he sent us because I think it's valuable. It, it's, it's not all stuff from different interviews that have already been said by him and it, it's going to be fun. So Zach, we'll let you start us out. All right. So yeah. So today we're going to welcome uh, John Riggs to our show. Right. Hey, how are you feeling? Um, I'm going to... I'll, I'll try to be as natural as I can about this. I did type out the answers, but maybe if I just look at the... Um, I'll, I'll, tr- I'll, I'll, I'll try to, you know, I mean, I'll try to make it... I'll try to make it sound like I'm not just reading the answers back. He is a repro-designing, ROM-hacking guy, 
also has a big love of cereal here recently. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cereal. Anyway, so John, tell us tell us what got you into gaming as a whole. Uh, no, um, you know, uh, playing video games was one of those things I remember growing up that I was good at. Uh, both of my parents are classically trained musicians, and my dad was a music teacher. I mean, he's a doctor, but it's a doctor in education. So he was, you know, he never never taught me how to throw a baseball, throw a football. Um, I didn't know the rules of any sport really until I got into you know playing video games. Video games was what taught me. Um, how football works, how hockey works, you know, stuff like that, too. So it was just uh, getting into video gaming was just, I mean, it was a perfect time for me growing up uh, in the early 80s where that was like the video game explosion. And uh, my brother was really into it, too. So um, it's just one of those things I just kind of fell into. And it was perfect. I loved it. So other than your time spent at the arcade, what got you into, like, collecting games this this is gonna date me here um in the late 90s i used what's called the usenet news groups for buying selling and trading games now up until this point i still liked older games like even though like the let's say the gamecube was available i still liked playing nintendo and super nintendo games you know stuff like that like oh here's you know here's the sega saturn cool but i still like playing you know sega master system games um, it got to a certain point where I started to realize a lot of these games I may not see ever again. So, like, the games I really, really liked, I didn't want to trade them off. I didn't want to get rid of them because there's a chance that I may, ne- uh, may, I may never see it ever again. So, uh, it just got to the point where I just started keeping most of the games I really wanted. And, I mean, I never really considered myself a collector, but I just happened to have a collection of games because I have a bunch of games that I play or intend on playing. <laughs> this is usually the case. Maybe it is a collection. I don't know. Yeah, so, so for me, collecting has been just one of those things that, like, I refuse to throw stuff away these days, because I'm sure everybody's had that story of, oh, I traded in this stack of stuff of, like, PS1 games or whatever to GameStop, and I only got, like, 20 bucks out of it or whatever. But at the time, I was like, yeah, I really want this other game, and I have that story, and I lost a bunch of stuff. So nowadays, anything I buy, I just hold on to like it's super precious. <laughs> so yeah. my collection has been just a lack of wanting to throw anything away. Or selling anything. Yeah, at this point, I don't think I've gotten rid of anything either. Even some of the, like, really... Well, okay, I've gotten rid of some of the, like, bad games that I just don't care about. Yeah. Like, uh, Call of Duty Advanced Warfare. <clears throat> oh, man, that game is shit. Yeah, it was really bad. It was so bad. Just in general and on principle. But, yeah, for me, like, I just like having that shelf. I like being surrounded by books and games and comics and that kind of stuff. So I like... I put together my shelf with it sorted by console. Sometimes it's alphabetized from where I used to work at GameStop. <laughs> but I, I just like being surrounded by it because you can like you can feel the culture and the history just like pouring out of it in like a spiritual kind of way. So that, I mean, that's why I keep all the stuff. Absolutely. It's it makes everything great. It's a, it's an awesome atmosphere. Like behind me, I've got a shelf of R.A. Salvador books. Ooh, I Completely like, that. Bes- like in between. I have. All of my scripts that I collected through college and have been buying, like a whole book on Shakespeare, and then I have Spanish textbooks, like all of these other like medical textbooks, and then below it board games, and then just the opposite of the room is this just collection of videos and video games. And I mean, it, it adds to the space, I think. And the other thing I collect is weird controllers. I don't know what it is about controllers. I just find them fascinating. So, John, what brought you into the, the creation of repro carts and, and modding as a hobby? And how does that tie into you, like, wanting to educate folks on All it? All right. So, and um, I've, I mentioned this before, but I'll, I'll say it again, too. Uh, I was watching Adventure Time. This is how I got into it. I was watching Adventure Time with my daughters. 
and I noticed how much Finn and Jake on Adventure Time was a lot like a boy in his blob. You have a young boy, and you have this um, animal or creature that can transform into things. And I was like, man, wouldn't it be cool if somebody did a hack of a boy in his blob to make an Adventure Time? So I came up with this very rudimentary, uh, not very good-looking uh, photo of what it could look like if the characters I just used, you know, pixel art into. Um, into a boy in his blob, and I put it on the internet. I think it was like on Reddit or something like that. And I was like, hey, uh, somebody should make this hack. And the internet, being the internet, was like, why don't you do the hack? And I was like, oh yeah, why don't I? Well, I don't know how. However, I have seen other hacks out there that are like, you know, uh, like Super Mario Brothers, but they're in Kiss makeup, you know, or, or stuff like that. So I was like, well, if they can do that, certainly I can figure out how this works. Uh, so with a little help, I uh, got started into um, hacking my own Nintendo games. And I got started by, I figured if I was going to do my own hack for myself, I wouldn't put as much thought or effort into it. I'd be like, ah, it's good enough. Um, so I used a couple of my friends, for example. I put them in Super Mario Brothers, for instance. And that's what kind of got me started. And at the time, I didn't know how to make repros of games. I had a friend who could. Um, at this time, nobody was telling anyone how to make repros. You had to just kind of figure it out on your own. There was some documentation online. It was way too complicated for me because I'm no tech expert. I don't know anything about electronic engineering. I, it, I didn't, it didn't make sense to me at all. Um, so I had a friend kind of show me how, the guy who would make repros for me. Um, he was gracious enough. I traded him a box. Uh, I traded him a medium flat rate box of Nintendo games for him to sell or trade or whatever um, <laughs> for the lesson on uh, getting started on how to make repros. And uh, that way I can make my own hacks and then put them on my own cartridge and give them out as gifts. And along the way, other people found out about it, and they're like, hey, can you do one for me? Can you do one for me? Can you do one for me? It is time-consuming. Um, so that's when I was like, well, instead of just doing it for you, I'll show you how I did it, and that way you can do your own. And um, I still get people asking if they can just, if I could just do one for them anyway, because <laughs> it is it is a process. And personally, I haven't created any repro cards. I would like to, though. Yeah. The NES Maker is coming out soon, and that'll let you do that in a more creative way. Yeah, that and um, Super Retro Maker is going to give it a very interesting uh, take on everything, too, just like Super Mario Maker. Yeah, I, I really wish there was a way for me to put Super Retro Maker on a card or something. Maybe eventually you can put it on the Vita and like get a, a Vita cartridge or something and do it that way. That'd be sweet. Just Raspberry Pi it. Switch, switch, switch. <laughs> Let's get it on the switch. <laughs> I find it interesting that Adventure Time triggered you, you making the mock-ups of everything. That's that's pretty awesome. That's a story I didn't anticipate, honestly. Uh-uh, Out of all I, the things, that is not what I would have anticipated. So, John, tell me, how did you get into YouTube? I had a friend of mine who, back in like the late 2000s, it was like 2006, 2007, um, he was the first friend of mine who actually canceled cable he stopped having cable he was like i just watch youtube now at the time i used youtube for like you know watching old music videos or like watching you know old wrestling clips and stuff like that i don't really think about watching it for shows uh but he was like dude i just i just have my subscriptions and i watch you know i just wake up every morning and i watch whatever's new and uh and go from there i was like i okay you know i, I never really thought about that and i did have another friend at the time who did youtube for you know vlogging and stuff like that but i it, since i wasn't into it and I wasn't interested, I, you know, if I'm not invested in it, then why would I make you think that I would want you to be invested in subscribing to my channel? You know, that was back in the day. That was like, you know, over 10 years ago now. Uh, so fast forward later on, and I get back into collecting, I get back into video games, and um, he comes back to me. And, um, and even at that time, when he was, you know, doing all that, he was like, dude, you have this huge collection of games. You should do a YouTube channel. There's this angry video game guy, um, and he shows off his collection, and you can show off your collection. You have a great collection. And I was like, nah, I, I wasn't interested. So then, you know, some years later, 
um, he was like, dude, you really got to get into this YouTube thing because there's more and more people out there. You know, people love your stuff. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, share with me three channels that you like. Just pick any three channels that you really like and I'll check them out and maybe I'll be inspired. I don't know. So he sent me uh, Angry Joe, which I watched and I was like, nah, all right. Um, Alpha Omega Sin was the other channel he sent me. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. You know, here's some dude who, you know, talks. He has a giant video game wall. And okay, cool, whatever. And then the third channel, uh, oddly enough, was Metal Jesus Rocks. And I looked at him and I was like, man, he looks so familiar. Because I, I wasn't friends with him at the time. I didn't know him at the time. I was like, he looks so familiar. But then I saw another video with him and Kinsey. And I remember Kinsey from the Seattle Retro Gaming Expo. And I was like, oh, I know her from Seattle. And I was like, oh, that's the guy. Okay, Metal Jesus Rock. I, I see him at the Seattle conventions. I see him at the, you know, I see him at the local Northwest uh, video game shows because he sticks out like a sore thumb, right? He's as tall as I am. He's like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, long hair. Um, you know, and he's, he's looking for video games too, just like anyone else. And it didn't really dawn on me because I didn't watch YouTube that he was even on YouTube or anything like that. Um, but then along the way, we have friends in common, you know, with Kinsey and with Reggie and all that. And we became friends along the way. And um, and then also, Metal Jesus was one of, the, one of the first cheerleaders for me, too, in starting my own channel um, to really get it going. Now, if you watch, you know, if you watch my first few videos with Metal Jesus on his channel where we talk about, you know, best Famicom games and stuff like that, I don't plug my YouTube channel because I don't even have one yet. Um, that's <laughs> that's how long ago that was. Uh, but that's kind of how I got into YouTube was I had a friend who pushed me enough for so many years. And then finally meeting Metal Jesus, and then he was the one who was like, "Oh, dude, you should, you know, start your own channel, you know, kind of thing." So just kind of got into it from there in a way. And I tell you, John, I've learned an awful lot about the hardware side of games from your videos. And I feel like if I wanted to make myself a repro cart, I could fire up some of your videos about whatever console you happen to be teaching on, and I feel like I would get through it. Like that's where I learned a lot of my electronical skills. That doesn't seem like the proper way to to call it out but my ability to look at a piece of tech figure out what it's what's wrong with it and then in turn order the right parts and splice it in that that all comes from youtube that's a skill that's developed out just out of interest yeah youtube's one of the great teachers now you know anything you want to learn is there and the fact that you're there you're there being one of those teachers is phenomenal so john if there is one bit of knowledge that you could pass on to someone interested in being a gaming personality or in the more broader sense, as just knowledge in general, what would that piece of information be? Oh, this, um, I get this question a lot too, uh, being a radio guy. And um, it's always, it's the easiest lesson and the hardest lesson. And the answer is, be yourself. Well, it's easy because, you know, no one can be you but you. But and then it's hard because it's like, well, how do you be yourself? How, you know, how are you yourself? What does that mean? What does it do? Well, I mean, you think about the best wrestlers in the world. I'm going to use another wrestling example here. Um, guys like The Rock, guys like Steve Austin, they were so successful because they were themselves. They had the personality switch turned way up to the extreme. So like the things that you like, you really, really love. And the things that you're like, oh man, I don't really care for that. There is no middle ground. It's just like you either love something or you hate something. So it's like if you lo like me, I love breakfast cereal. Do I really love breakfast cereal? Well, I do. But you know, for some reason, breakfast cereal became an extreme for me, where it's like, I love breakfast cereal, and people people know that. Um, you know, so if you dislike something, it's like, oh, I hate RPGs. It's like, oh, man, you're, you know, no one no one hates RPGs more than you kind of thing. So uh, any, any one bit of knowledge, uh, especially, you know, to be a gaming personality, I would just say it's be yourself, but be, your, be yourself as if you were... Uh, imitated on Saturday Night Live. If they, if you did something viral and they were going to imitate you, how would they act as you? <laughs> Be that guy. <laughs> so you're still yourself, just to the extreme. <laughs>
so yeah at the end of the day the human race is a collection of personalities so that makes a lot of sense be yourself yeah like you just gotta be you and just sell all of you at the same time yeah (laughs) okay so other question on the other side tell me about your recent cereal collection oh cereal uh my favorite (laughs) <laughs> I love my cereal more than anyone. Um, I don't really have a cereal collection. I do have a couple of older boxes of cereal. Like I have the TMNT cereal, uh, like with the Ninja Nets and the marshmallows. I have like a I have a box of old Batman cereal and a couple other ones too, like a Barbie cereal and stuff like that. I, it's not really a collection. I just happen to have the boxes. I opened them up on earlier videos and like took a bite of each one. Um, I mean, I still love cereal, but even like today, like the Super Mario Brothers cereal and everything, it's just like, you know, I, I take it and I eat it and I just throw away the box. I don't I don't actually keep the boxes or anything like that, but I do have a friend who does. So I, I like cereal. It's <laughs> I don't like it as much just to keep the boxes. I guess. Collect what you enjoy. If it's cereal, sure, go for it. If it's knowing the history about a particular set of products, I mean, why not? Absolutely. What did I What did I collect before video games? Rocks, Legos? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't think I collected anything. It definitely feels like a more adult hobby, right? Yeah. If I had a, If I had a kid, he'd have a collection. <laughs> I would set him up and be like, "Here, you learn the NES first, and then you go to the Super Nintendo." <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if I've ever mentioned it on the podcast because, frankly. We don't get to sit down and record as often as we would like. But since I moved to Alaska, I got a a job doing radio. So I do typical radio, daily news. I interview people. We talk to businesses and people in the community and that kind of thing. Um, So John works in radio as well for for your day job. And I mean, what have been some of your favorite moments from radio? And does that cross over into gaming? Uh, Well, radio gets me some access that YouTube doesn't. Um, Like PAX, for instance. PAX West is very strenient on who they let in for media um, just because you have a YouTube it used to be at PAX West it used to be you could host a podcast and all 16 of you would get in for free as a media pass uh, but now it's like if you're on YouTube you have to have like you know over 50,000 subscribers so many views and then they still have to look at your channel and say nah, no thanks we don't need you I mean it's it's gotten it's gotten pretty bad but I've been able to get I've been able to get to PAX every year based on my radio credentials which is awesome, and <laughs> and I and I love it for that. Um, there was once upon a time I used to give away video games on the air. Like I remember back in the day, I could just you know give Activision a call, and you know one time they sent me a box of like, hey, here's a here's a bunch of uh, you know here's a box full of twenty copies of Psychonauts just came out. You know, give them away, and that was you know it's cool too because I was like I never heard of Psychonauts before that, so then I kept the copy for myself. They knew I always did, and it turned out to be Psychonauts, one of my favorite games ever, especially for the like you know the PlayStation Two. We got it for the PlayStation Two. And other just radio, you know, the fringe benefits of like, you know, you go backstage to concerts and you meet musicians and you meet, you know, famous people to an, to a degree. Um, but it's also still work. So it's also like you still have to you still have to work, too, which is also like, you know, my wife says, you know, I'm the t- I'm the worst person to bring to a concert because I'm too busy overanalyzing the stage value and the production value. And it's like, oh, man, this is, you know, they really put a lot of time and effort into it. Instead of just enjoying the show, I'm too busy, you know, <laughs> I'm too busy watching the lights. <laughs> That is super lucky to be able to get into PAX for part of your day job to do the job that you love to do. I mean, that makes sense. If you're somebody that has like a much more broader understanding of the media side and the news side, if I got an application for PAX and I saw that either A, someone was just like a standard writer or B, somebody who's a writer and happens to work daily in radio. I mean, I would pick the radio guy personally. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I'm, I'm also 
on the exact same boat with you as far as like the person to go to a concert or to go to a show because of all my experience in live production and like stage tech like Mm -hmm. I go in and I'm immediately like oh that's awesome you know I see the fly like systems they have going on like the lighting set up like this like what kind of lighting units are they using is it ellipsoidal is it a like for now like they got any spots like what kind of collar do they have on them I'm breaking that down in my head more than I'm just enjoying the space at first I have to, like, switch gears in between, like, what I'm doing. Like, I have to be like, okay, okay. Like, I gotta just take it in. And me and you have done some... I, I did what you're talking about to a much lesser extent, but I we've worked on a couple projects of, like, concerts and that kind of thing together before. Yeah, yeah, we've we've put up and tore down a couple. Yeah, th- those were interesting times. I remember one night, there was a concert we had to do, and not only did I have to put it up at, like, 11 o'clock, but I had to come back at, like, 3 in the morning and take it down, and then immediately be in um, the, the classroom, like, at 10 the next day, and I was just like, this is getting silly <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's where we had to start picking and choosing what we could help with usually i did it though i almost always did yeah yeah i tried to do as many as i could but sometimes i just wasn't able to you know if i was in the theater till midnight and <laughs> doing some tech after that it was like not a not a thing i could go do What's it like being a father as a gamer? Do you, like, talk to your kids about games, like, and get them into it? Or are there any kind of challenges about, like, getting your kids into games versus them not wanting to or wanting to? You know, it's funny. None of my kids, this is the classic story of, like, you know, baseball player, uh, you know, had a kid who wanted to play video games or something like that. Um, None of my kids liked video games at first. I would try to put a controller in their hand, but they're always, like, didn't really know what to do or they're apprehensive or they would try to use, like, the NES controller like a mouse you know, and it doesn't work that way, you know, stuff like that. Um, I kind of got them eased into it a little bit. There was a Puyu game for the Wii that was like a digital download. Um, I had the Sesame Street games for the NES, and they would play those kind of, but not really. Um, and Panic for the Sega CD was another great one. They played that one a lot. Um, but then it wasn't until Mario Odyssey actually came out for the Switch that all three of my kids really got into it. And all, all three of them can play it. I mean, you don't die in it. You just keep going and, you know... You keep playing along, and I do have a, my older daughter now is more into video games now, so she'll actually play like Animal Crossing and Kirby and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it was um, they just they weren't into video games at first, and now they're kind of into it, and they know they know I'm into it, and they see my collection too, which is the other nice thing too, because they're growing up with 40 years worth of video gaming. So to them, there is no retro gaming; it's all video games. There is no current gen, last gen. You know, it's what what there is is what there is, and it's all video games. Doesn't matter. And, uh, and I love that idea. I'm happy that your kid likes Animal Crossing. I can never get into it, personally. Just one of those one of those things I really like. I'm not going to lie to you. If the, if the Animal Crossing mobile version hadn't been so pay-to-win and just really centered around microtransactions, I probably would have enjoyed it a lot more. So, John, this is something that's been on my mind here recently because of the, the extra work I've been doing and the focus on it. But what are your thoughts about esports? Especially with the, the surge in popularity and attendance and people viewing it. I mean, it was one of the most viewed things on ESPN there for a while was a League of Legends tournament. So tell me what your thoughts are about it. I love esports. I wouldn't, I mean, I would never win. <laughs> I would, I would never, I would never compete because um, I suck competitively, competitively speaking. Uh, but I think esports is 100% legit. Uh, it does take skill. It does take practice and timing. And I mean, these, these are people who are playing video games for money, like for real money. It's, um, you know, and, and they're doing it on stage, like in front of a crowd of thousands. Uh, so you got the pressure there too. You want to do a good job and you want to make a good impression and please the sponsors and all that. I mean, it's as, you know, it's as high pressure as, you know, being a professional poker player or uh, pool, play, you know, billiards or something like that. 
Um, I mean, I don't know if it'll ever be an. I don't think it'll ever be an Olympic sport. If it does, great. But I don't think. It, I don't think it's like Olympics style. But I also, I don't. I don't think it wants to be the Olympics. And the Olympics are overrated anyway. I'd rather just be its own thing. But yeah, I, um, I, I'm. I dig esports. Um, I couldn't tell you any of the players or anything like that. But it is 100% legit for sure. Okay, so were there any games that you really competed with? Any speedrun games that you enjoy or throwing down in? No, again, I'm not a competitive gamer. Um, I like the Fire Pro Wrestling series, and I'm good at those. So if anything, I would maybe play those and hold my own. But um, yeah, for the most part, I just kind of, you know, play with friends or play online or just I, I just have fun. I don't I don't ever play to win or anything like that. I just I just play for fun. And then lastly, John, before we let you go, um, have you ever considered pursuing a world record in gaming? I know a lot of folks that are into the retro scene, that's something that a few of them have really pursued, and uh, I'm wondering if that's something you would ever consider. Yeah, I've never pursued it. I should look into it, just because, you know, it would be cool to have my name associated with a game. I don't know which game. Maybe Princess Tomato. I don't know. Um, I, I wouldn't even know which game, though. But the... Um, you know, I've, and I've met other, I've met other gamers who are world records, like Tim McVeigh, the nibbler guy. I met him. Super cool dude. Uh, my buddy, Paul Tessie, he's in the Guinness book for several games like the campus challenge and some Nintendo world championship carts for, you know, top score and all that too. So, you know, I'd rather cheerlead them on <laughs> in their quest cause they, they're really into it. Um, I'm again, I'm not competitive, so I will. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, if there's a game that comes along, maybe, and it's like, I can do better than that. Uh, down the road, who knows? <laughs> I guess I guess we'll find out. Maybe later on this year. We'll see. <laughs> That's it. All right. Uh, use this as you please, and thank you. All right. Well, we do want to thank John for taking the time out of his schedule. Like we said, I mean, he's, he's a full-time radio guy like me, and he's doing all this other YouTube stuff on top of it. He's a dad, and he took his precious time and answered some questions for us, and I, I think there's a lot of value there. Thanks, thanks for coming on to the show, John. If you're listening back to this, we really appreciate all the work you did to be a part of our little piece of the internet. Yeah, we were super excited to have you. Like, being able to read, like, and hear your thoughts on everything that you've been doing and everything that we were curious about going on out there. Like, it's been wonderful. And we hope to maybe even have you back in the future. That'd be cool. Maybe one of these days we can actually, like, set up something that's actually, like, part of a legit conversation. <laughs> but yeah, so having John was a lot of fun. Um, Zach, what have you been playing here lately, man? Okay, so lately my life has definitely been soaked up by the new Monster Hunter world. <laughs> so I'm sure if anybody has been following our show for any given time, it was probably obvious. As soon as it was coming out, I was planning to get it, and you ended up getting it for me, which was awesome. And again, thank you for that. Hey, you pay our SoundCloud bill. I mean, <laughs> it was the least I could do. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's been wonderful. I've loved every bit of it. It's taking me back into all of the old Monster Hunter experience plus new things for it. Like, not having to Superman pose when I drink a potion is much more easy to move around and not get hit. But that and um, Fortnite has still occupied yeah. a good chunk of my time. That game is kind of what got me into playing multiplayer PlayStation again, because I was waiting for Monster Hunter to come out. I bought the, the PlayStation Plus, and then Battle Royale games are still fucking huge, right? So I was like, man, what's this about? And then come to find out, everybody else is playing it. So, I mean, it got me back into actually, like, playing games with people again, which is something I very rarely do. I, I've really enjoyed playing Fortnite with you guys, and even just fucking with it on myself. So, what I've been playing is probably no surprise. Um, I'm playing Monster Hunter almost exclusively, Mm -hmm. It's fucking awesome. 
just it's so it's everything I've wanted in Monster Hunter, right? Like I've com the the only reason I've ever rated a game in the Monster Hunter series in the past 15 years, like none all of them were great, but they were never perfect because they were on a freaking handheld and the controls of Monster Hunter are fairly complex. So now that it's on the PlayStation, full HD graphics, things are gorgeous. Um, Control-wise, it's a dream. I'm, I'm actually maining Bowgun, which is weird, because I'm almost always using Gunlance. Yeah. So I, I've switched uh, to a range fighter, because the controls are just so good. And you're doing awesome at it. <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. I mean, I've gotten to a point where, like, a monster will run by me, and I won't even roll. I will walk to the side while reloading and dodge that hitbox. Just, like, super casual. <laughs> uh, that's that's me and potions. Being able to it's take so those couple fun. steps while drinking, I'm just like, I'm gonna scoot over here just a little bit. I know you're coming this way, I'm going to the left. <laughs> There's been very few monsters that have, like, tripped me up. As a ranged player, I feel like the game is fairly easy if you're doing it solo or with a group. Because I have not struggled hardly anywhere in the game, aside from like the Diablos I had some problems with and the Pink Raytheon I had some problems with. But for the most part, I have had a very easy time of playing this Monster Hunter. Yes. And I don't know if that speaks to like the difficulty of past games, but like there are very few that I have to play twice. Yeah, I've the only issues I've had monster hunting wise has been uh, if I've done Nergigante, it's usually not been by myself. I've been jumping into SOSs. Because first yeah. time I did it was with like Swag Devil and somebody else, like people I've been playing with constantly anyway. But mm -hmm. all the other times it's just been he's got a if he knocks you on his ass he steps up and does this big hammer slam with his fist and it's almost undodgeable. Mm -hmm. It is dodgeable, but if you don't have like the ability to get up quick and move, like it knocks you out. And if it hits more than one person, like that's almost an insta wipe because he's gonna do it again before the match is out. Yeah. The, uh, the main tip that I have, specifically for attacks that have a tendency to combo a player, um, as you're laying on the ground, your character is in, you have invincibility frames. It's when you start messing with it and you start standing up in the, in those mid frames is where you're vulnerable. So for instance, if you get smacked by Nergagante's big right hook, I mean, just stay down for a second. <laughs> the other thing too is to watch out once he hits the ground, when he comes back up, a flurry of spikes goes out. And a lot of people have a tendency to forget about that. So, I mean, watch that big hook. But he's doable. Nergagante, I didn't have near as many problems as I figured I would. Because we played him in the beta, so, I mean, I knew most of his moves anyways. That and, and that's where like monsters. Yeah, and that's where the repetition of Monster Hunter, I mean, that's that's the fun. Is, like, you learn these monsters, you learn their patterns. Eventually, you're doing it like it's nothing. Like, it's so cool how you can take something that's such a big challenge. Because, I mean, the odds are stacked against you in Monster Hunter. I mean, they just are. It, things hit way hard. Um, you don't hit nearly as hard as what you might expect in an action RPG. It's all about like being creative and using tools. And I mean, it, it's just you learn. It's a steady process, and it's a game that I can see myself playing for a very long time. And I really hope that they keep the series on main consoles from here on out. Right, and that, I hope. That said, I still want Double Cross on Switch. God damn it, don't want that. <laughs> With all the new stuff, like there's so many new ease of life changes with this Monster Hunter that are yeah. still extremely difficult for new players, but mm -hmm. uh, the learning curve's still there, but also it opens up the ability to take that away, like self-restrain yourself and challenge yourself more. So uh, you were talking to me about people doing slinger runs. Yeah, or like that other guy that we played with on our stream the other day, shout out to Bones. I don't yeah. know if you listen to our podcast, but I mean, he was like, yo, I killed a great Jagras, which is the first major monster, with nothing but sumo. 
which is a gesture that happens to have a hitbox. And I was like, damn, that must have taken forever. <laughs> yeah. I've still yet to kill something with the sumo. Like, I always, if I if I know the monster's super weak and sleeping, I'll run up and try to do the sumo to kill it. But, like, I haven't accomplished it yet. One day. One day. We'll get there. Aside from that, I've been playing Dusk. Dusk is a, a, a retro-style FPS. It's only on PC at the moment. Basically, if you like Quake, you should be playing Dusk. Because it's essentially a new Quake, and it's pretty freaking cool. Hmm. Uh, man. It's only like 20 bucks, too. It's cheap. I remember playing Quake forever ago. Me and my little brother played Quake, actually, for the first time. I missed out on a lot of that, because I never had a PC capable of running games. My first, my earliest days PC gaming were emulators in black and white. And that's just, it happened to be optimized to the point that it ran on my shitty machine. Kind of. Nothing was ever perfect on PC gaming. <laughs> Not for me. I remember playing Morrowind, and even though it was glitchy as shit, I played hours upon hours of Morrowind on my little crappy computer. I gotta see Morrowind played, but I didn't get to play it. It's a complex one, but man, it is good. I recommend if you're gonna play it today, download the, uh, the that mod that makes it play with the stat style of Skyrim, just because it makes it a little more approachable. Because that's the kind of game where, like, if you swing, that attack is based on a, a roll. So if you're using a sword and your sword skill sucks, there's a chance you're going to miss that swing, and it's very off-putting to a lot of people. I like that, though. I mean, it could be interesting. <laughs> it's it's a very D&D-style play. Yeah, that's that's why I think I would like it a lot. <laughs> Give it a shot. I mean, you could be a werewolf in some of the expansions, which is why I bought it to begin with. We need better werewolf games. We Somebody do. get on that. We do, and not not necessarily the traditional one. Like build on it. Give me give me something. I would want to play a Hulk Ultimate Destruction style werewolf game, <laughs> where you just run around and eat sheep and shit. Like make that happen. <laughs> New this is why simulator. I wish I was even slightly talented to be a game developer, because I would build an early build and take it to like Capcom or something and be like, "Yo, <laughs> oh yeah, help, help me." But I, I have no capability, hardly at all, when it comes to programming and that kind of such. It's learnable, though. This is the kind of skill that you can just put time into. Like Punchy says, put in effort, get thing. <laughs> Simple concept. That's the kind of advice you could live your you could live your life off of. That just little piece of what Punchy says. Yeah. But yeah, so thanks everybody for hanging out with us for another rip-roaring episode of the Forever Classic Podcast. I mean, we this is the kind of thing that we just have so much fun doing. If you have a question... Send it into our specific Gmail account, which is the Forever Classic Podcast at gmail.com. Got to have the the in there. Of course, you can find all this information in the show notes. This particular episode doesn't have show notes because we kind of did it off the cuff. But in previous episodes, you can find that information in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Look in the show notes. Never mind. Look in the old yeah. show notes. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you can find us at. On Twitter, it's at ForeverClassic105 for me. You just take out the F-O-R and put a number four in. Everything else, it's spelled out. You can find us on Facebook. Nobody uses said Facebook. Maybe somebody will eventually. Uh, the Forever Classic Hub, it's on Facebook. And then on Twitch, it's ForeverClassic105 for me. And the Discord link is also in our show notes. And for me, it's just Exquisite Liar, all one word, no V at the beginning, on everything except for Twitter. There it is just exquisite underscore liar because somebody, some bot somewhere has my name. Yeah, I wish you could like, that's the kind of thing I wish you could just pay somebody like, oh, this person hasn't used their account in such and such. I would like the system to send an email to them that says, hey, somebody is offering you $10 to have this account. Would you like to acquire $10? 
that's the kind of stuff that I wish was incorporated. Yeah, something like that would be nice. Yeah, because, I mean, so many people, like, they, they try to keep it consistent, and sometimes it's not possible. Yeah, and I don't want to change everything else into, like, a slightly different format at this point. Yeah, me neither. It's like if I if I had the ability to change my name on PlayStation Network, I would change it because I thought I was putting in Razer105, which is my usual username for some stuff. Somehow I ended up with Razer105389, and I'm not sure how that happened. I don't remember agreeing to that, <laughs> but that's how it worked. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, I guess this is me now. Hmm. Okie dokie. But yeah, everybody have a fantastic day. Man, be good to each other. Just stay cool. Be nice. I don't know. Tell somebody they meet and they, they matter. I don't know. Be good to each other. You all matter. You're going to be <laughs> awesome. Games matter. People matter. You fucking matter. Yeah, you, Jim, from Baltimore. I know you. You matter. Music this week was Ambient Loop 3 by Essa. This episode was edited by me, Zack Snyder, the Exquisite Liar. And it was produced by Alex McCumbers from Forever Classic 105. We'd like to say a special thank you to our guest this week, John Riggs. It's been a pleasure, and it was great to have you. Be sure to check out his content at Rigged Games on YouTube and Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.